Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. Sometimes it feels like we're all Elijah. You know, have you ever gotten to that point where you're just super, super crabby and you everything's just going to go badly and you just can't do it anymore and you just, in that sort of almost toddler phase, we all get there still from time to time. Um, and I feel like God is just hanging out as a parent in that moment, being like, you're fine, have a nap and a snack. Chill out, Right? I love that. I love that lesson, frankly. And I think it's a part we skip over a lot of times when we're reading the story of Elijah. Um, so I wanted to highlight that today. And then in our gospel lesson, a sort of similar moment. Jesus and the disciples, having left the large crowds that are pretty much continually around them at that point, cross the Sea of Galilee. It's been a long day of teaching for Jesus. Uh, the gospel, the chapter four of Mark is just filled parable after parable after parable. And you just get the feeling he's been standing in front of the crowd all day long. Teaching and expounding and trying to get them to understand. And he asks the disciples to take him across the lake. And I think he might know what's going to be on the other side. There will be healings. There will be more teaching. And he takes advantage of the voyage, curls up on a cushion in the stern of the boat, um, probably about where the tiller is, and he takes a nap, possibly to keep from becoming like Elijah, hangry and tired. Now, the Sea of Galilee is known for its waves. It's a little bit like the Great Lakes here. It's an inland sea, kind of in a bowl. And I don't know if when you were kids, you ever sat in the bathtub and pushed yourself back and forth to try to make the water to make that wave thing? I, Jeff Katie has. I can see that look on your face, Jeff. Um, I used to do it. It drove my mother completely crazy. Kids don't. But that is the sort of movement that is created in these inland seas. The wind gets funneled down and it pushes huge walls of water up. And these waves become absolutely tremendously huge. If you've ever heard the song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, that's what we're talking about, right? So that's what the disciples are in the midst of there in this story. And they are completely freaking out. In case that wasn't clear. Now, these are fishermen who have been fishing these particular waters for probably most of their lives. So you'd think they'd be used to it. And yet we find them in many ways, and you can hear all of them together, egging each other on in anxiety, right? You know how occasionally when people are anxious and they get together and they just push until everyone's anxiety has built up to an absolutely ridiculously high level? Mm -hmm. We've all watched that happen, haven't we? They are growing more and more anxious and they are growing more and more angry at Jesus as he continues to be a completely non-anxious presence, sound asleep at the back of the boat. 
Through the eyes of their anxiety, his much-needed rest is a mark of dismissiveness, heartlessness even. Because he does not share their anxiety, he must not care about them at all. So they wake him up to yell at him for not being what they needed him to be in that moment, which is every bit as anxious as they were. They wake him up and yell at him for not affirming their fear. It is more than a little passive-aggressive, frankly. But that doesn't seem to bother Jesus all that much. He, whom the disciples have just accused of not caring at all, takes away the source of the anxiety and then asks why it was that they were anxious in the first place. Have you still no faith? He asks. A question that we could take to suggest that they could have calmed the storm themselves. But which, really, might just as easily inquire as to whether they did not believe in their own abilities. These fishermen, these sailors. Whether they couldn't have, maybe instead of building up the anxiety encouraged each other, prayed together, trusted one another's skills and wisdom as Jesus trusted all of them. As much as we know that Jesus rested, and rested often, taking breaks from the crowds as, and taking breaks from the disciples, one begins to understand why he might have needed those from time to time in reading this particular passage. Getting away just to be alone for a while, on the regular, really, we know this, we see this in our scriptures on a regular basis, and we still have this odd aversion to the concept of rest, at least where it applies to us. We wear our busyness, our exhaustion, almost as a badge of honor. The idea of working overtime, of being continually available to our employers, of being constantly in motion, constantly active, is seen not as overkill, but as some normal expectation of those who just Take work seriously. Seriously enough, perhaps, that we are willing to sacrifice our bodies, our lives, and our relationships on the altar of the sacred workplace. To believe that we have the ability, through our work, to create our own destinies, to determine our own value, to become somehow worthy of life. Work, really overwork, has become such an idol to us that we often base our judgments of human merit upon its worship. To wit, we believe that food, housing, health care, let alone any extras like a car or internet access, for instance, are things to which we have no particular right, although they are often required for life, but are rather things that must be earned through exhaustion through a willingness to work ever longer hours simply to be able to exist as a human being in this world. Even rest is something that our culture tells us we need to earn, though it is as necessary to us as food or water. Rest that is not merely sleep, but is in fact the ability to remove ourselves from the relentless drumbeat of a culture that insists that we need to earn our right to live in this world. Rest that means stepping off of the hamster wheel that we inhabit, even if it is only for an hour. Removing ourselves such that we can remember that we are in fact more than our productivity for a culture that would just as soon let us die. Theologian UCC rock star 
Walter Brueggemann, in his book on Sabbath, which I highly recommend, reflects on the original commandment to rest given by God on Sinai. It is, of course, one of ten commandments that would begin to reorder the lives of those who had been slaves, but who were now called to walk with God. And Brueggemann says this, I quote, The utterance of the Ten Commandments by God to Israel begins, amazingly enough, with reference to Pharaoh and Egypt. The recent departure from Egypt, still vividly remembered, provides the context and urgency for the new rule of God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Exodus 20, verse 2. All parties at Sinai, God, Moses, Israel, could well remember what it had been like in the world of Pharaoh. They could remember that Pharaoh was regarded and regarded himself as a god, an absolute authority who was thought to be immune to the vagaries of history, a force with insatiable demands. They could remember that Egypt's socioeconomic power was organized like a pyramid, with a workforce producing wealth, all of which flows upward to the power elite and eventually to Pharaoh, who sat atop that pyramid. They could remember that Pharaoh, even though he was absolute in authority and he occupied the pinnacle of power, was an endlessly anxious presence who caused the entire social environment to be permeated with a restless anxiety that had no limit or termination. They could remember that Pharaoh, who controlled the Nile, nevertheless had nightmares of anxiety as he dreamed of famine and as he imagined that the creation would not produce sufficient food. They could remember how that nightmare of scarcity, which contradicted the wealth and power of Pharaoh, led to rapacious state policies of monopoly that caused the crown to usurp the money, the cattle, the land, and finally the bodies of vulnerable peasants. They could remember that such exploitative policies eventually reduced the peasants to state slaves, who were kept busy building granaries to store the vast food supplies of the state monopoly. They could remember that the frantic policies of Pharaoh, based on anxiety about food production, would lead to heavy-handed misery and the need to keep working and keep producing in order to meet insatiable imperial quotas that were without end. They could remember all of that when the god of Sinai announced God's self as the one, quote, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. End quote. The people who followed Moses across the parted waters and into the wilderness of the Sinai were a people for whom anxiety had been a way of life. Don't ever think we can't identify with those people. They had been so caught up in the anxieties of those who had power and feared to lose it that they were forced to give their lives for the maintenance of their own oppression until it was so normal to them, so routine, that once they left the situation, the anxiety came with them. For those who fled Egypt continued to root their concepts of worth in the labor of their bodies, such that neighbors were perceived as adversaries, competitors for the worthiness that productivity bestowed. Even when they, were no, even when they no longer had to work in order to eat, when God sent manna and quails to fill their bellies and water to quench their thirst, these necessities of life had to come with the reminder not to hoard them, not to keep them for one's own use. That which was intended for all of creation would be enough for all of creation. This was not something that they just accepted naturally. 
It was into that anxiety, that scarcity mentality, that suggested that even the necessities of life were commodities, individual benefits rather than communal entitlements. It was into that anxiety that God spoke. The God who had created a world of interdependence and generosity, the God who had trusted creation to continue on its solid foundations of love and grace. God spoke to the Israelites still conditioned to their own oppression for the sake of the power of those willing to set humans to competing for those goods that God had given for the well-being of all. Brueggemann continues, and I am quoting him extensively because this book is so worth reading. I quote, How strange to use the most airtime at the mountain on the Sabbath command. It's the longest commandment of all of them, you know. The divine utterance must have come as a shock to the listening Israelites. There had been no Sabbath in Egypt, no work stoppage. No work stoppage for Pharaoh, who worked day and night to stay atop the pyramid. There had been no work stoppage for the slaves, because they had to gather straw during their time off. No work stoppage of anybody in the Egyptian system, because frantic productivity drove the entire system. And now God nullifies that entire system of anxious production. There are limits to how much and how long slaves must produce bricks. There are limits to how much food Pharaoh can store and consume and administer. The limit is set by the weekly work pause that breaks the production cycle. And those who participate in it break the anxiety cycle. They are invited to awareness that life does not consist in frantic production and consumption that reduces everyone else to threat and competitor. And as the work stoppage permits waning of anxiety, so energy is redeployed to the neighborhood. The odd insistence of the God of Sinai is to counter anxious productivity with committed neighborliness. The latter practice does not produce so much, but it creates an environment of security and respect and dignity that redefines the human project. Perhaps someone would ask for a basis for work stoppage that contradicts the core enterprise of the economic rat race. God at the mountain anticipates such a question and answers. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day and consecrated it. God rested. God enjoyed a work stoppage. The verse is a direct reference to the creation liturgy of Genesis 1 to 2. God rested on the seventh day. God did not show up to do more. God absented God's self from the office. God did not come in and check on creation in anxiety to be sure it was all working. God had complete confidence in the fruit-bearing, blessing-generating processes of creation that have been instituted. God exhibits no anxiety about the life-giving capacity of creation. God knows the world will hold, the plants will perform, and the birds and the fish and the beasts of the field will prosper. Humankind will govern the earth in a generative way. All will be well, and all manner of things will be well. So imagine, says Moses at Sinai, you who engage in production and consumption are not little replicas of anxiety-driven Pharaoh. You are in the image of the creator God, who did not need to work to get ahead. Nor do you. God invites the ones at Sinai to a new life of neighborly freedom, in which Sabbath is the cornerstone of faithful freedom. Such faithful practices of work stoppage are acts of resistance. 
It declares in bodily ways that we will not participate in the anxiety system that pervades our social environment. We will not be defined by busyness and by acquisitiveness and by pursuit of more in either our economies or our personal relations or anywhere in our lives because our life does not consist in commodity. End quote. The ways of anxiety, of commodification, of consumption, are not the ways in which our God calls us to order our lives. As Brueggemann notes, those who are not anxious, who can break out of the rhythms of fear that break us into individual units rather than one body or one creation in the image of God. Those who can step out of the anxiety systems are those who honor one another, those who do not need to commit acts of violence or use one another in exploitative situations who can follow the remaining six commandments, in other words. Because those who do not engage in the systems of fear live instead in the systems of life that God intends for us. When we are set, not set against each other by the anxiety of the powerful, then we do not fear the stranger or the immigrant. We do not create scapegoats in the form of welfare queens or addicts. We do not blame victims for reproducing the violence that has been perpetrated upon them for generations. We step off of the hamster wheel and life is made new. Into our anxiety, in the midst of our wilderness, God still speaks a new way of being. And the hinge between the God who calls us to life and the life that we do embody in community, the hinge there is that need to rest. The need for us to remember who our God is and that it is not us. When we rest, we gain perspective on that hamster wheel. The relentless dehumanization that reduces us, breaks us, cuts us off from one another and from the possibilities of grace. For the rest we require is not simply about getting a little break from our own lives. Rather, it is about resetting ourselves in ways that break the grip of others' anxiety upon us. That remind us of who we are and of whose we are and of the life that God has created for the good of us all. It is within the anxious system that we see rest as an individual benefit, commodified and given only to the worthy. But Sabbath is resistance, as Bergman argues. Resistance to a system that makes us earn that which is necessary for life. Resistance to a system that sets us against each other in service to the idols of self-determination and exhaustion. Resistance to a system that begets violence in multiple forms, fracturing community before it can begin, othering us so completely that we even lose sight of God in our very midst, making us resent anyone who seems to get life's necessities without exhausting themselves first. Because Sabbath, rest, is not and never has been an individual practice, any more than our dependence on food or shelter or health care are individual needs. And the rest that God envisions for us the reset from the systems that ensnare us in anxiety, these are not just to make each of us calmer and more pleasant people. They are to give us the perspective to see the brokenness of our culture, the anxieties that the powerful enact upon us, forcing us to collude in our own oppression. And then to say no, 
not only for ourselves, but for the sake of all who are created in the image of God and who are forced to participate in what Brueggemann rightly calls a rat race. Sabbath is resistance to the idolatry of productivity and the sacrifices that our economy of exhaustion demands, the sacrifice of our very humanity, of our communities, of our place within an independent, interdependent creation that reflects the goodness of our God. Because to engage in Sabbath is to engage in a system of trust and vulnerability, even when the seas seem rough and we think we might be perishing. To engage in Sabbath is to acknowledge that the world can go on, even while we, like Elijah, need a nap and a snack, even while we, like Jesus, take a break from the busyness, even while we, like God, take a day to simply enjoy that which we can all see is good. To engage in Sabbath is to live into the rhythms of this creation, and it is to recreate those rhythms for all who live here together, not in moralistic, legalistic, blue law terms, but in the acknowledgement of human rights to food, to shelter, to health care, in ensuring adequate respite for new families or those in caregiving roles, in creating space for creativity outside of the rhythms of production, in exchanging the anxiety of the powerful for the life-affirming community that we all know is possible. Because to rest is to acknowledge that we worship a God who calls us away from the bonds of anxious systems and whom we therefore praise with humble hearts. To rest is to commit ourselves to living in the creation that God has always intended for us, in interdependence and vulnerability, in communities without violence or exploitation, resentment or greed, in one body, which honors God's provision for us all, in the kingdom in which we find life and life in abundance, and in one creation in which all are worthy and all are beloved, no matter what this anxious world might try to tell us. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Amen.